Welcome to the Music Business Podcast. Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends, tactics, and insights from some of the world's brightest minds in music. I'm Jordan Williams of EQT Management. And I'm Sam Heisel from Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. What's up, Sam? Mic check one, two. Mic check. I can't hit those high notes, though. It's all good, man. You don't need it. I get low. You a digital marketer. You don't need it. (laughs) What's happening? Today, welcome back to another episode (laughs) of the Music Business Podcast. Where did the country accent come from? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you from Chicago, bro. You forgot? (laughs) When I get low, the country comes out, bro, because we go down south in the tone and in the the geography. How are you you. doing tonight? Got you. But anyway, guys... (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of the Music Business Podcast. Today, we got the man Nate Auer back here. He's co-founder of Versus Creative. I don't know if you guys saw, but the homie was a Billboard digital power player. Yep, just announced in November. So for those who don't know, Versus Creative is a... I would actually consider them more of a digital experience company. I think before before today, I would have said that they were a digital marketing company, but it seems like the things that they do with branding, partnerships, digital marketing is just a piece of the pie, you know? Um, they've worked for people like, you know, artists like Drum, Solange, helping do crazy activations for Solange, but they've also worked for, you know, Golden Voice, uh, you know, people, the people that put on Coachella, for those who don't know. So um, I think Nate brings a lot of experience not just in terms of digital marketing, but in terms of really, you know, what he says in the podcast, extending your art and and using, you know, digital platforms as a way to do that. So yeah, for sure. I think I mean he played a foundational role at establishing a lot of the music initiatives at MySpace, Tumblr. Worked with Kanye. Worked with a handful of amazing artists. I think he brings incredible perspective on how to go about really building a deep emotional connection with an audience and helping grow that audience. I think some of the tactics he spoke around really building and cherishing that connection with your core fans and having those become your biggest advocates and ambassadors was really fascinating. Him talking about the importance of kind of self-awareness as an artist and how that should really be the foundation for all of your different marketing messaging and initiatives. Um, And then also just unique ways in which you can really create unique, memorable events. Yeah. So I think... All of those things really made this a, an awesome episode from my perspective. Um, I also think that I uh, want to shout out our um, the space that we get to record out of, Bands in Town. Bands, Bands in, in Town, Town Studio. Why do you love Bands in Town, Jordan? Bro, I love Bands in Town because Bands in Town makes everything easy in terms of announcing artist tours, um, making sure that everything is synced from the website to Bands in Town to Facebook. Uh, Bands in Town is my go-to for for helping my artists sell tickets. Um, it's actually, and I think this is the highest compliment you could give a website. It's the only option that I really prioritize. And um, a lot of that isn't because it's like, oh, you know, Bands in Town, this, that, and the third. It's just they are the best. So, I, you know, very clearly. So I use them because they are the best. Straight right. up. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Let's do it. Yo, what's up, Nate? What's up, Jordan? How you doing, man? Glad to have you on. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, Thanks. we had that um with that conversation about your your history like yeah. a few months ago. Mm-hmm. We were talking and I after that I was like, yo, we should get Nate on the podcast, you know? So now that you're uh I know you tell everyone this all the time, but now <laughs> that you're a billboard power player. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Um, nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You, you got to scroll deep on that page to find me. <laughs> uh, so they humble, got your so picture and everything up yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool, man. So I guess for people who don't know your company, just tell us a little bit about Versus Creative. Give us some context. Yeah. So I co-own a uh, 10-person marketing strategy company called Versus Creative. Uh, we're based in both LA and New York. Uh, we work with a number of artists, music festivals, uh, brands, tech platforms, um, and other entities that want to play in the music and culture space. Uh, we help them out with digital and social strategy, um, content, partnerships, uh, and experiences. Uh, so we like to we like to think about how technology and social media affect the way in which we um, engage in music and culture, um, and vice versa, uh, and what. 
uh, are the touch points that drive our emotions and our connection to music. Um, so like as, as music evolves and, uh, as, uh, as music becomes more ephemeral because it's just in our pockets at all times, these other experiences like real life events, um, social media play a much bigger part in how we develop our fandom. Um, and so we're, we're focused around the fandom of music and, and how people connect with it. And we help others, uh, whether it's an artist uh, or whether it's a music festival or whether it's... So you it's, do work with artists too? Yeah, yeah. We work okay. with... Uh, this year we've been working with uh, Jack White and Raconteurs, uh, Vampire Weekend. Uh, we work with the George Harrison Estate. Uh, so we relaunched that Instagram. Uh, we run their content strategy. We work with Bonobo. Uh, we work with churches, Drom, number of other, other artists. Uh, what is the experience like to, in terms of um, working for an artist versus working for a brand? How does it, how do they defer? Uh, well, an artist is a person. Artist has yeah. like feelings and aspirations and you can relate to an artist on a different way. Like when you're working with someone on a brand, you have to relate to that person's feelings about their brand. Yeah. Um, and artists can be more personal and, and we, uh, we enjoy being able to work with artists on how to translate their art for the culture. So another artist we worked with this year was Solange. Uh, we, she brought us on to executive produce her album launch events in Houston, Texas. It was nine simultaneous screenings in and around Houston's third ward, all in different locations that weren't traditional screening locations, but places that were meaningful to her present and her past. So uh, uh, the Museum of African-American Culture, Unity Bank, which is the only Black-owned bank in Houston, a rim shop, a few community centers. And so it was our job to execute that on her behalf in a way that these screenings were an extension of her album. Damn, man. And of her art. That's pretty dope. You know, I think it's kind of funny. Um, You know, we've been working in the same office since February, but I didn't know half the shit you just said. That's like really (laughs) awesome. You, You just come in, you put on your headphones, and you're like, you know, you're in work, you're out of work, but that's super, that's super fucking dope. So, yeah, so how long have you been in the digital marketing branding partnership space? Let's see. I first, I, my first gig in it was with MySpace. I took a job with MySpace. Shout out Tom. Of, yeah. Shout out Tom. <laughs> that's the man, Tom. Everybody's first friend. Yep. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> he's still around. Yeah, he's still ball. He's just balling somewhere. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I took a job with MySpace at the end of 2005 and moved out from Cleveland to L.A. Uh, and started working there. There were fewer than 100 employees there at the time. And that was my first experience with like digital. Was it the same type of thing? Partnerships and, and experiences? Or? We, were, we were creating it. Like That was when... Uh-huh. That was when music was first, music pages were first a thing on MySpace. Like we were sitting there naming the genres that bands would select. And we were talking about how to launch video on MySpace. Uh, And my first job was working on promotions and events. So it was partnerships. I was in charge of uh, distributing MySpace parties in a box. And I was in charge of brokering our Mm -hmm. partnerships deal with Vans Warped Tour as well as other music festivals and events. Uh, I had I had spent two years as a tour manager. That was my first job in the industry. Oh, shit. So That's crazy I knew, job. I knew how, yeah, yeah. Best, yeah. best job to learn everything yeah. about the music yeah. business. And like, that's how I know about the artist experience. Right. Anyway, so I used what I learned on the road uh, to help MySpace architects, MySpace secret shows. Our marketing guy, Isaac Walter, shout out Isaac had an idea to put on these intimate shows that we would just announce on MySpace two days in advance. Uh, and fans would just line up first come, first serve. And Jake I helped him to figure like out how, how we would execute it, how much it would cost. Like people try to play you on, on backline costs, on venue rental fees, especially they see your MySpace, you're yeah. owned by Fox, you're one of the biggest websites on the internet. So we, we created a plan uh, we had labels pay for it because MySpace was the biggest promotional engine at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was the hottest thing and the only thing in, in the game, really, in digital. And I really witnessed the power 
of these online communities to bring out this urgency and bring people out to real life, um, to these real life experiences and what it meant for teenagers and young 20 somethings to like get this once in a lifetime concert experience. Cool. So that was my first role there. And then I, I went on to help them uh, pilot a few other programs when Tom launched Instant Messenger. What is Tom's last name? Just out of curiosity. MySpace. <laughs> Tom, Tom MySpace. No, it's Anderson. Tom Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. Okay, bet. I'm just wondering because, yeah. you know, he was all up on my page for years. So. And then you jumped Tom over Anderson. to Tumblr too, yeah? Uh, yeah, I had a three and a half year stint in music management. And then I went over to Tumblr. Now, who did you work music. for in music management? I'm only asking because I know. <laughs> uh, I worked with a number of artists. Uh, my two biggest clients, I spent, well, the whole time I was working with Linkin Park, which was Damn. incredible. Yeah. And I worked with Big Boy, uh, Kanye West for four months, uh, Slash, Kelly Rowland, Enrique Iglesias. Damn. Jimmy Cliff, Counting Crows. There were a bunch Fine. of artists in and out. All American Rejects, Stained and Hoobastank. Jesus. <laughs> Chester <laughs> French. Damn. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Nice. For three Chameleonaire. We were with Chameleonaire for yeah. a while. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Trying to catch him riding dirty, man. Yeah, he's yeah. out here. Like, he, I, I love what he's done with his career because even though he's like irrelevant musically at this point, He's made some power moves as an investor, really ingratiating himself oh, yeah. in the tech startup world. Yeah, man, he's still rich. He's rich as hell. He's he's richer yeah. than he could have ever been. Which is interesting music. too for like artists. I mean, the ones that that I have the most admiration for are the ones that leverage their success as a musician and build that into businesses beyond just their music. Because well, yeah. oftentimes the music isn't forever. Yeah, right. For right. sure, he's he's really good at he coaches artists on creating longevity for their career. That's amazing. And, uh, creating investments and figuring out how to really maximize their IP. That's, re- that's beautiful. So, I, I mean, it's awesome to see that you were so heavily involved at, uh, I mean, MySpace, the foundation of MySpace Music, which undoubtedly like helped open up the gates to the door of how people interact with music on the internet. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, then you worked at uh, kind of mus- on the music side of Tumblr, um, so you've seen and now working, really helping artists, brands identify their social strategy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk at a high level um, what you've learned seeing all these different platforms come and go in relevance and how that's informed kind of this ongoing perspective you have when it comes to evaluating different platforms for right now? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, for one thing, what I learned is you have to be open to the fact that you might not know what your next move is because it might not exist at this moment. So you have to be open to everything and and you just have to be open to how people not only are starting to respond to or building a movement around something now, but what you think its role can be in the future. And really what matters is what's important to the core fans now and how they want to engage in something and where they want to spend their time because you're never going to force user behavior, right? And so much about music's struggles have been that they're trying to force behavior, Uh, whether it's it's trying to plug leaks back in the 2000s or shut down Napster or or whether it's now Spotify Trojan horsing video content into people's pockets. And you need to respond to what people want. Like people want their visual content on Instagram or they want it on TikTok or they want it on YouTube Mm -hmm. or they want it in their living rooms. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I like to focus on is just where that emotional connection to music can is where the potential is for fans to get an emotional connection to music. And like for for me, I'm in this weird, I'm in this weird like older millennial where I remember the onset of the internet, but I also remember my freshman year of college going to the record store every Tuesday right, 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 right. and buying a CD 
getting well, me too, man. I went to Sam Goody. Yeah, I went to Sam Goody like every Tuesday. Yeah, it was so like you'd get a work. CD. Yeah, or you'd get a tape. Like first, my first experience with that that I remember is like Green Day Dookie, of going to my bedroom and playing that tape and going through the liner notes and having this intimate and emotional connection immersed in this in mm-hmm. this music mm-hmm. and while that act that specific activity is impossible that emotional connection can be there but what's the vehicle that can deliver that connection for fans and between fans and artists and that's the that's the puzzle that I like to try to figure out yeah for sure I love that too because I think even though the platforms will change the same principles of trying to build an authentic connection with the community never will. Yeah. So when it, I mean, if we were to like peel back the layers, like what is, and what is this emotional connection built upon? How do you approach trying to help people build an emotional connection with their, with their potential fans, with their existing fans? Probably so, different per artist, or yeah, or it per is. Brand. It is right. different per artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, are there any like thematic approaches when it comes to like how you try and replicate a process of building connection? Yeah, yeah. So, so the process goes a little like this, and this is this speaks to what you said, Jordan, about it being different per artist. Is you got to listen first to what the artist wants to do and what the intention is behind their art, and and what drives them and what they're what they're comfortable with. Some artists are not comfortable with Twitter and are comfortable with Instagram, some vice versa. But where will they feel most comfortable and where can they be authentic? And and then how can you present the opportunities with these many different platforms so that instead of them having to edit their art or or shape their art in a way that works for that platform because that platform made a box for them, how can they instead manipulate that platform to work for their experience? I think that's why digital platforms are so exciting. Like when you were buying CDs at Sam Goody, all the artists had to work with was eight pages of paper that were square and they had a font size that they were limited by and they had a deadline to deliver that. But now you don't have that. Liner notes could be anything. Yeah. Right. And and maybe the maybe streaming platforms are limited in terms of what you can put there, but how do you create that context to it? And that's what I'm talking about. Um when I say think about where fans want to spend their time. One of my clients actually made liner notes himself and put it in a PDF. And and after the album came out, he just released the PDF. Yeah. He was like, go to this page for like my custom liner notes on the on the album. Um, and I like that because it kind of brought that experience back. It just made it way more accessible. So yeah. you didn't have to go to the store anymore to get his liner notes. Yeah. You could just go on his Twitter. His last tweet had a PDF of the liner notes. It was mm-hmm. like, download this. But mm-hmm. also he did it because everybody was getting his lyrics wrong. <laughs> so, so, so it was a mix. It was a mix of both. Well, yeah. If you but wanted yeah. <laughs> to, you could control how people experience your album for the very first time. Yeah. If you really wanted to. Right. And that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one other thing, um, just going back to how you approach and thematically have developed this understanding around like the rise and fall of different platforms. You used to work with Gary Vee, Gary Vaynerchuk, and, mm-hmm. and like I love the way he frames it. And I think I've definitely internalized this, but the notion of like underpriced attention and not being dogmatic to any specific platforms, but just always looking as to where there's this like, um, this opportunity, I think right now, like a lot of people are seeing that Instagram organic reach is kind of like fading. Like, yeah. And then on the on the flip side, like TikTok is like blowing up, just hit over 1.5 billion downloads, number one most downloaded app on both Android and Apple stores. Like, and there's ways to, I think the ways to like hack organic exposure on that platform are a lot more real and attainable than it is on Instagram at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been interesting to think about that. What are your thoughts on TikTok right now? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is because so many people totally don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that makes it more for the audience that uses it. Yeah. 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 And it makes it their community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like these old people can't get in. Totally. I like that. 
I just downloaded TikTok recently. Yeah. Now well, I opened it and I was looking at stuff and I was laughing, you know, sort of like I do on Instagram. But then yeah. I was like, well, what the fuck do I do on it? <laughs> so I was like, what type of content do I put on it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what if I want to? And I think I think that's kind of what makes it exciting. It's like for Vine, for example, it was like, well, what do you do with a six second clip? Like, what mm-hmm. do people actually? And then it kind of came into view. I feel like something is happening with TikTok right now, but it's, you know, the fact that I even asked that question is also allowing people to kind of figure that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the platform itself is still kind of figuring that out too. So for sure. I used to think it was only for people doing covers of songs. Like, oh yeah, like doing their own cover. Like, yeah, like the guitar and the mic. And pre- yeah, and pretending to sing. Like, you know, because TikTok has this huge licensing deal. So yeah. I thought it was mostly around music, but people are on there doing regular stuff. Oh, for sure. You know, just like, just like repurposing videos of themselves, like time lapses and things like that have nothing mm-hmm. to do with music. So, um, yeah, I think that makes it a lot, you know, more difficult to figure out, but a lot more exciting when you do and when you can, when you can finally get like an audience for it. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. We have this one guy on our team that's like absolutely like blown up on TikTok Started an account like three or four months ago, and he's about to cross one million. Yeah, and if yeah, I were to just if it. I were to distill it down to like the growth hacks that we've identified that we're trying to like replicate, one is um, like all of the videos of his that have like really blown up, and he has some videos that have randomly got like I remember when his first video got like a million, and then ten million. I just had like some dumb. I respect it, but it's like <laughs> some dumbass video has like 70 million views. It's because he's identifying what are the specific trends on TikTok and and um, and then creating creative concepts around these different trends. And the Instagram is very much favoring organic visibility around content that plays well to these trends. And he would also get uh, he would post a video, and if it didn't perform well within the first 10 minutes, he would take it down and repost it and do that five or six times. Until on the sixth or seventh time, you'd see that like it was starting to take off. Damn, that's and there, there's certain wild. videos that have that have performed incredibly well that may not have done that had it happened uh, had he not done that tactic. The Damn. same video he same would delete video. and re-upload. Yeah, and I think it's similar to like Instagram, and I think uh, and supposedly it's like the how much engagement your post gets within the first like ten minutes dictates how much love the post will get and how much organic exposure it'll get, which yeah. is why it's like, even if you guys post something on your page, it's like super vulnerable, connects really deep. Like you could tell within the first like 10 to 15 minutes, it's going to go well. Like the algorithm's looking at that too, like early engagement to inform like, yeah. and so, yeah, so that was, it was just that on TikTok, which is like wild. But I think it's still a mystery. I think a lot of times the music industry right now, it seems like they're focusing a lot on getting songs to go viral and get people to repost videos and have influencers make content with their songs rather than actually asking the question, what's the the artist's strategy for building their own presence on TikTok? Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, it's almost like it's not for the artist. It's for the fans yeah. to do what they want with the artist's music. It's like, like Snapchat is like that too. Like we yeah, don't... Yeah, yeah. If an artist is not authentically already using Snapchat, we don't ask our artists to use it. It's more about setting up the experience like around their shows right. or around, we work a lot with Snapchat around moments like Coachella and mm-hmm. other festivals we work with, but it, it's less about being the creator because that's where the, the people are, the creators. That's interesting. Can you talk about some of your favorite campaigns that you run or specific activations that you're just like, Really proud of? Yeah. And why? Uh, he said, yeah, I could. I, <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, which yes, ones? It's like, next question. Which ones are my favorite or which ones do you guys want to hear about? Or I mean, for, for the sake of our listeners, I'm which lucky. ones do you feel could offer the most tactical takeaways to an uh, audience of aspiring managers and artists? Yeah, well, I guess I'll talk about there's there's a few. There's uh, the most recent ones, I would say. A Tumblr IRL was a big was a big thing for me. Um, for those who don't know, it was a online meets offline uh, content and event series. I would partner a band or a musician with a visual artist on Tumblr to create all sorts of content uh, specifically for Tumblr. 
not bound by time or file type or file size. Think liner notes made for the internet. Uh, and then it would culminate with an event in a physical space. That would be free. We'd announce it on Tumblr and fans would just show up. And it, it was the opportunity to say to an artist, if you were to invite fans into a room that looked, felt, and sounded like your album, what would that be? And we would mm. give them that canvas to do it. Uh, we did 34 of those across three years. And it was pretty fucking awesome. And uh, I'd seen how that that was one of the things that shifted the conversation in the industry for and for artists uh, to really start fucking with Tumblr on like a, a major scale. Mm-hmm. Like there were when I came into Tumblr, there were artists who were already using it. Like my bread and butter were like Frank Ocean and Odd Future. And this this allowed me to show artists in the industry what was possible with this platform. And, uh, and it, it changed the conversation because it was, it was a thing that you couldn't do anywhere else other than on Tumblr. And that was really the, the calling. Like my job on Tumblr was to, or at Tumblr was to get artists to use Tumblr. Yeah. And the best way to get artists to use a platform is to show them how their peers are using it and to place bets on the right ones uh, to showcase that for others. Uh, so that was like, that was pretty, that was pretty memorable. Uh, what about it do you think, uh, do you think was like memorable or the, the spark that made you, you know, answer this question with that experience in particular? Well, I think what was, what to me sticks out is like before it, artists and labels tried to do a certain thing for album releases. Mm-hmm. And then after it, it sort Kinda of changed. changed it. Yeah. And what sparked it to me was just that like our CEO asked me to do, to create Tumblr's version of MySpace Secret Shows. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not going to do just the same exact thing. Like, what is the essence of Tumblr? And it took me a while to like tinker around. And I did some other event event production and one off right one off activations to figure it out. And then it kind of came together for me. And I was like, I want to I want to try this thing. And uh, the person I I worked with on the first two Tumblr IRLs is my business partner now, Rishi Shah, who's working with Portugal the Man and Chromio. And those are the first two. And so it, so I guess that, that spark was David Carp asking me that, that question, but me not settling for what's been done before, but more like, I'm, I hate cookie cutters. Like I want, I want to look at like what's possible for this thing moving forward. And I think the advice to to listeners would be use your use your past to to learn from, like learn from things that have happened in the past, uh, but don't use your past to tell you what to do in the future. Right. Use your past to tell you to do some crazy shit. Yeah. You know, one thing that I learned, one thing that I learned pretty early on is um I was meeting with a manager, artist manager, uh, before I started working at the company I'm working at right now. And somebody else I know wanted to work with that manager. And for some reason, they let me sit in on his interview. So I was like, I, I went with my friend to this interview. And um, this artist manager, he sat down and was like, yo, so what's like some some dope shit that you're thinking about right now that could work, that we could that we could do? Like, what's some shit that nobody's done before? That was like the first question he asked. He was like, how, how do you see, what's the next thing that you see changing shit? I just want to change shit. That was like the first thing the manager yeah. said. And I was like, damn, like that's, that's partially, you know, what I feel like everybody should be trying to do. It's like looking at the past and being like, this is what we did last time. How can we really flip this on his head and do it differently this time? Not just build on this, but like kind of fuck it up. What right. if we want to fuck it up? What, what would that look like too? In addition to kind of continuing what we're already doing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Don't be afraid to try something new and crazy. Right. 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 
I mean, that's the whole thing with ideas and, and brainstorming and that sort of thing, you know? I yeah. think I think that was one of my biggest weaknesses when I became an artist manager. I was just like so cookie cutter. It was like, yo, we doing this shit by the book. One of my clients even called me a Boy Scout at one point. And I was, <laughs> I was like, yo, you kind of right. Like, I'm not really like pushing the envelope that much. And then since that day, it's been yeah. like, yo, how can we do this shit differently? You know? Well, it's hard to challenge things. You, you want to, it's... There's this balance, like, especially when you're representing an artist, you don't necessarily want to push them too much. Right. It's it's that how much do you just say yes and and do your job and carry it out and be it methodic and be methodical? Or how much do you push back on them and say, but what if you did it this way or you shouldn't settle for that? Right. Well, how much do you rile them up on that? There can be strategy and innovation at the same time. Yeah, totally. So if you want to innovate and, you know, I've done this before and got called out on it pretty hard by my boss, which made sense. I was like, why don't we just do this? Because why not? And he was like, okay, well, why did you just say that? Like, what? Like, tell me, I understand that. But what was the strategy behind this? What do you think this is going to contribute to? Because you can contribute to a larger strategy and still innovate, you know? Totally. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had to edit my ideas for both strategy and politics. Oh yeah. Politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's music industry though, you know. Yeah. It's also agency in we're, general. Yeah, <laughs> whenever, just working with people. Whenever you're an agency and you're not the one that has the deci- you're not the decision maker when it comes to like what you can execute, but you have all these ideas, at the end of the day there's I mean, sometimes you have clients that are so down for the cause and just willing to try whatever. And then you have other ones that like just don't. So then you have to, unfortunately, just want it gets watered down. Yeah. When it comes to the experiential side, and I think, uh, I mean, the Solange event series you mentioned or the activations for that were awesome. I'm curious what you see as being elements of incredible, memorable events and activations. And I, I mean, I think... I guess to the extent that you can reference events and activations you've helped put on could be great too. But I think even a lot of the listeners there, whether it's an artist that has a show, I mean, they're trying to create this memorable experience to build that emotional connection with their fans. Like from your perspective, like what makes for an amazing event? I think for one thing is being unique. Like how can this, how can this event or show be an extension of the artist's art Mm. and how can they use that opportunity to stand for something or make someone think or react. And I think a big part of it is also being intentional about what the story is around it. So you could do a really cool event in New York city that all the influencers go to, or that all the like cool kids go to, or the people who are just music fans who get to go to all, all the, get to go to but a thing that new york and la don't always understand is that nobody else gives a fuck about new york and la (laughs) so yeah these fans get to go to these cool shows all the time and say that they saw celebrities or were at the same show as this other person or someone else come out on stage but how do you create this story so that a person who's at home on the internet in Iowa or in Poland or in Argentina is feels like they have a part in it or they can participate in the story or and I'm not just talking about live stream because live stream is like the first thing at the tip of people's tongue when they right. say let's get a brand to pay for this thing but it's how do people know that an artist did a really incredible thing for their fans and part of it is empowering the fans to tell the story empowering the artists to tell the story and creating that arc of like, what is the content around it that is special for the people who don't get to go? So you're spending $200,000 to put on an event for 200 people in New York City and 50 of those people are in press and media. That's a super high cost per head. Yeah. But if you think about that cost or the trickle down of the fandom yeah, and what it means for the fandom to show that this artist that we love got to do this thing that the artist really cares about. Then everyone is rallied around it. I love that. 
Yeah, I especially love, too, the notion of really just tying it back to the identity of the artist, what they care about, and really having the event itself be an extension of them. I think uh, that level of like self-awareness is yeah. the foundation of, for all this stuff. Yeah, totally. And you can't have an experiential strategy without a digital strategy around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to be, as a, as, a, as a brand or an agency, you have to be wary about the fact that artists and labels they need the checks. So they'll go with the people who will write the checks to do the events or to do whatever. But what are you left with at the end of the day? Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so let's say I just started making music. Actually, he's made music. That's in the archives. <laughs> I want to hear it. Yeah. No, man. Same with the scrubbed listeners. It. I scrubbed it. It's not true. It's still I out there. I scrubbed it. It's not out there. I don't know what he's talking about. There's a YouTube video. Anyway, Sam, you can answer this question too. <laughs> Even though I'm trying to ask you this on another episode. Um, I just started making music. I'm putting some stuff out. What's your advice to create that experience for listeners off the bat? Even though I don't have a budget, I don't have a label, I may not even have a manager, like for people listening. Create that experience? What do you like mean? extend the experience of their art outside of their music. Like we were just talking right, about right, with right, events right, right. and because obviously you could obviously if you you know if somebody wrote me a check for ten thousand dollars before every show, I could yeah. make I could come up with some pretty cool right pretty cool experiences. Okay, you know? so you're but saying how do you do that small scale? You, you, you know? made the music, you put it up on SoundCloud yeah. already. What do you do around that? Right. You tell your story. You you start by thinking about okay, what are people going to do while they're listening to it? How do I inspire a, a connection or a thought? And maybe what's the thing that's that's connected to this? Or where are the communities that are going to care about what I have to say in the music that I'm making? And how do I make sure I'm putting something out there that's like authentic to my experience around the music, whether it's like what I was going through when I wrote this song or uh, the visual art that I'm creating around it or writing out the lyrics if it's lyrically powerful. Depends on your music. Right. But you want to put it out there for that community. Say you're if your song is about a travel experience, do you find travel communities or is it based on, if it's based on your college experience or something that you think college kids would identify with, how do you find those kids? And you got to get out and play shows. Yeah. You got to get in front of people because they got to see you. And then once, once people start, once you see a few people taking on to what you're doing, really grab onto them and engage them and give them more. So you're going to grow your fan base by focusing on the people who love you and not on the people who are hating on you. Yeah, one of the first things I learned was dig deep, not wide in the music industry in terms of just who you go after in terms of fandom. Yeah. You know, don't try to get everybody, but focus on the people who are into you. Right. You know. Because they're, they're going to be your best marketing force. Right. Your fans. Right. And some people don't even know they're your fan. They don't even know they're in that in that platform yet. And a lot of the times, at least in my experience, the people that find that out aren't the mm. people that you market to directly. It's the people that they know that yeah. are those fans too. You know, like if you're a musician and you market to me on an ad that may not be as, I mean, it probably isn't as effective, I would think, as if, you know, I'm best friends with Sam and he put me onto your music, you know? Yeah. So for me, marketing totally. to him may make more mm-hmm. sense because his word of mouth is more important than me marketing directly to you on some Facebook ad. Yeah. You know? Are there other uh, tactics that you have deployed or seen work well when it comes to nurturing that connection with those super fans? Because I, I don't want to over—I don't want to gloss over that because I think this is pivotal, and I don't—I don't think it's something we've really spoken that much about. But really, yeah. how can you turn those those big fans into those advocates, into that megaphone? Yeah, and it's it's different for each fan base. Because, again, it depends on where they're hanging out and what they care about. Some really care about limited edition merch. Like, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard put out so much music, and they put out limited edition vinyl all the time. And if you look at Discogs, their stuff sells for hundreds of dollars. And there are people, like, their Reddit threads blow up. There are people who go nuts just to get anything about King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And you can call them King Giz for short. 
I prefer King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. But these, <laughs> these people feel like they have ownership in, in yeah. the band. It's like they're they're investing in the band and they see that other people aren't. Like they're not getting big radio play. They're not getting playlisted big time. It's like, what what is it about this band or your music that is special to the audience that loves you? And how do you make them a part of your story and your experience. For some, it's letting the fans premiere music. Uh, for others, it's it's letting them hunt it down and discover it. Yeah. Uh, we did a crazy thing with Linkin Park back in the day. They had, they have a crazy, huge fandom. At the time, they're the biggest rock band on the internet mm -hmm. and super global on every continent, they play stadiums. So when they were putting out new music, we set up a global scavenger hunt where people would go on the message board on the, on the fan club. And first, we, we set out a clue in, in one language and people had to figure out what, it, what language it was in, what it meant, and where to go find a thing. And we had clues left all over the world in different continents, in different countries. And each clue in that country was in a language from a different continent. And so they needed to go Holy back shit. to the fans online to, have, to work together to decipher the clues. And at the very end, a kid in London went and found an envelope that had a USB drive in it. This was in only one person could find the envelope. One person could find there was only one envelope, and this was the only place where the new song existed. Oh damn! That's and the tight. envelope said, "Oh, that's tight." This is a drive. <laughs> the only person it's encrypted. The only person who has the passcode is Zane Lowe. This is back when Zane was at BBC One or whatever yeah, radio yeah. station was at. And so they had to take it to the radio station, deliver it to him. But but the instructions said, um, once he encrypts it, you can you can upload it and name it whatever you want. So the fans premiered it. The fans delivered it to Zane. They worked together to do it. It was it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen of a group of people who speak so many different languages working together around one artist and that's what that artist was able to do with their fan base right or the, right. what that fan base was able to do with their artists that's right and just that level of creativity too i mean i think don't get me wrong there are like proven tactics you need to like press into because it's just like fundamental stuff but i think where people break out nine times out of ten are the ones that are able to come up with those unique perspectives and unique ideas yeah and it's like i mean the main guy who came up with the idea and executed is he's still working with this band. He works at Warner Brothers. His name is Adam Rumor. Incredible. He runs the, or at the time was running the fan club. Tight. It's like people, you have to pay that much attention to what the fans care about and give them something that they wouldn't even think that was possible for them yeah. to do. That's right. amazing. Um, real quick, I do want to dive into your journey as an entrepreneur, but you mentioned fan club. Fan clubs kind of in their name, fa excuse me, fan club have kind of gone away. But I mean, fan clubs have gone from like these male fan clubs, like where you mail in letters and stuff and get stuff back. Oh, like M-A-I-L? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, to Instagram and just social communities. Like fan clubs themselves have largely just been replaced by that, right? Yeah. What are the elements uh, of a fan club? I mean, that you feel were strong and present back in the, like the actual fan club days that are still ringing through today that artists should keep in mind. I think the thing that fans want is access. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough of a fan base that they will pay for access, then, then give it to them. Like it's, Everyone knows that you're building a business and that they're patrons to your business. So if someone is paying for, excuse me, if someone's paying for first access to tickets and you're that type of band that is entitled to do that, 
or if someone's paying for a VIP experience, like Drake has a fan club, you they, his his fans get to get a VIP hang before the show. They don't necessarily get to meet him. Uh, Taylor Swift has a has a fan club experience where I've I've seen it firsthand. These fans who get to meet her, like they're lining up on one side with the greatest anticipation ever and like nerves on their face, and then they walk out the other side and they're crying and yeah. they're laughing. <laughs> That's and, like Jordan's podcast fans. No, but you have to be <laughs> you have to be authentic to what that experience is. Like Taylor is great with each and every one of her fans who pays for that and she honors them. Mm-hmm. So if if you're going to charge for something, you have to deliver. And you have to let people know why it's special that they're charging for it. But yeah, it's access. If it's going to meet the artist or get something early or get limited edition merch and people care about it, uh, then that's a reason to have a fan club. Yeah. But if it's just to see posts or see content, then it's like, oh, come on. You're just right. trying to get money. Right, 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 right. For sure. So then when it does come to this your entrepreneurial journey, I mean, that's awesome. You've built your company up to 10 people. Um, can you just talk a little bit about some of the lessons you've had or the challenges you've had to overcome in this journey of building up a 10 person company? Yeah, I, we come with the big questions, bro. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the challenges are just like the pressure that you are responsible for these other people in their careers. Yeah. Every single person who works at versus creative is a superhero and has isn't her own superpowers and they're going to have incredible careers and I want them to have the best experience and growth at this company and I'm responsible or mutually responsible with my partner of delivering that security to them. Like we're not a corporation that can give them benefits and a guaranteed salary no matter what um, or make it so they can just like sit around and fuck off on the internet uh, because we're all building and working towards something. So for one thing, it's it's a specific type of person that can work at a company like that and who who values that over the, the corporate thing. There's something that's more difficult about either one. There's something that's easier about either one. So, so that's, that's one thing is that responsibility for people like healthcare, like they want 401k, like their growth. How do, how do, how do these people grow at my company and how do we nurture that? Cause that's, that's important yeah. and we want them to. And it's it's better for us. Like we want them to get all the credit for everything and and build everything. Another thing is just how volatile corporations are and how little they actually care about you as an individual. And it's fine. Like I'd never take anything personally, uh, but. You could, if you're on a retainer basis, which most of our work is, mm. you don't have that guaranteed work all the time. So there's always this like ebb and flow of how much is enough. You want to, you need to super serve your clients because they always, you want them to always be your happy clients. with, with what you're delivering. Yeah. But you need to make sure that if they go away, you can build that back in. So, I mean, the best thing we can do is always do our best. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and hope that our work speaks for it and just treat everyone with, with kindness and like really honor the work. Cause we all care. Like mm-hmm. we care about the work that we do. Yeah. And it's that, it's that integrity and it's important for people to have a great experience working with us. And we've loved and appreciated everyone that we've gotten to work with and we're super lucky in that front like when i started the company i had clients already so i didn't have to i didn't have to build from the ground up mm-hmm. and 
So I'm, I'm lucky in that sense, but I knew that at some point those would go away and I'd get to fill them with something else. So you have to, if you're going to be retainer basis, you got to get, get used to that, that pressure and it's a different kind of stress. And another thing is we're, we're starting to build a few things where we could have some co-ownership of that, um, that are ours that we can make money off of. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, it's been incredible having you on the podcast tonight, man. I think uh, I've learned an incredible amount. I think really excited to see everything that's happening in your world and really appreciate you sharing all these lessons with us. Thanks. Yeah, man. Thanks for stopping by. Nice to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yo, that was dope, man. That was dope. One more time for him. Yeah, man. I mean, Nate, you know, he has a lot of experience, a lot of different places. He's, you know, when he talked about starting at MySpace in 05, that brought me back, bro. That brought me back. Like, oh, Nate, an OG. Yeah, no, he worked for my, he worked for Tom, bro. He for knew Tom. Tom. Tom Not that many people knew Tom, but he knew Tom. You that's know? great. That but is even crazy. working on digital partnerships back then, you know, starting back then. And then, you know, come 2019, he's got his own company. He's got a whole bunch of stories to tell. Yeah. He definitely, you know, he went into him in the podcast. I almost wish the podcast was a little bit longer because he just had so, you know, so much knowledge. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the highest compliment you could give to a, a guest. So yeah, that's true. Most of these guests, I'm, I'm like, when this episode over? No, I'm playing. <laughs> nah, I'm playing. Nah. I'm playing. We love our. <laughs> Shit, you trying to get us in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> it's called sarcasm, man. Um, <laughs> emotional connection. Really enjoyed hearing him dive into that, and ultimately to just the there's these core principles that are going to outlast any marketing trend, any trending platform. These are, these are notions of like self-awareness, having a deep understanding of your brand and what it means to you and what you're trying to express to the world, understanding who the people, who your core audience is and where they spend time, where they spend time will change. But if you understand who they are and where they do spend time, that gives you a roadmap as to where you should be seeking to engage with them. And then the notion of really trying to find creative ways to build an emotional connection. It's like, okay, it goes back to that level of self-awareness. How can you understand what's important to your fans, to your customers, and then also what's important to you and find those overlaps so that you can build that connection. Um, I think, and then lastly, just that notion too of really pressing into making your super fans your biggest advocates and your biggest marketing machine. I, I think yeah. those are, are themes that are fundamentals in marketing. And I would encourage every listener today to coming out of this episode to really think about those in the context of their own projects. And when he talked about that Linkin Park activation, it wasn't just rewarding super fans, but it was also creating community in the meantime. So he it's talked beautiful. about that a lot. And, you know, that's what we try to do with our podcast. So I love it. You know, prices. Well, Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. If you haven't already, hit us up on uh, on Instagram at Music Business Podcast. Please go ahead. Also, leave a review wherever you're listening to your podcast. Um, we appreciate it. The review helps us grow. Uh, we appreciate your feedback. We appreciate your support. We appreciate y'all. We hope that y'all sprinting to the finish line of 2019 so we can close it out strong, close it out with a bang. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>